It's Monday, February the 7th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. While I'm the only fellow who can lay claim to that rather wordy job title, I'm not the only fellow doing podcasts these days. If you don't believe me, go to the Hoover website and check it out for yourself. You'll find us on the web at www.hoover.org. Once you land on that page, click on the tab that says Publications. Go to where it says Podcasts, and you can look at the podcast for yourself. You can subscribe to any or all of them. You can also sign up for our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best of our podcast to your inbox each and every month. Hoover Podcast, just one aspect of ideas defining a free society. My guest on today's show is Peter Robinson. Peter is the Hoover Institution's Murdoch Distinguished Policy Fellow. You may already know him as the host of Hoover's video series program on common knowledge. And you may recognize his voice if you subscribe to the weekly Ricochet podcast, as I advise you to do, where he comments on current events. But if you're a student of history and the American presidency, you probably already know that Peter Robinson penned some of the most famous words ever uttered by Ronald Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Peter, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Bill, a pleasure. So I asked you to come on, and in a moment of weakness, uh, we'll attribute it to COVID brain, uh, COVID brain fog. Will you agree to it? The reason being that yesterday, February the 6th, was Ronald Reagan's birthday, his 111th birthday. Reagan born in Illinois, the only American president born in Illinois. I was surprised to find out, by the way. Is that so? That hadn't occurred to me. Right. We associate Lincoln with Illinois, but he was born, of course, in Kentucky. Reagan's right. the only Illinoisan by birth. Um, each year this happens, when we look at Reagan's birthday, Peter, there is the question of Ronald Reagan's relevancy to these times. And I think this is a very good time to look at it when you consider, A, the conditions here in the United States, and B, America's posture around the globe. Now, as then, we have questions of the nation headed in the right direction and whether we're letting aggressors go unchallenged around the world. Your thoughts, Peter? Well, what would Ronald Reagan do is a question that I still occasionally get. Mm -hmm. It seemed to, to me to be a sensible question to ask for about 10 years after he left office. So let's say from right up until about almost the turn of the millennium, almost until 2000, we still lived in a world in which a lot was still so close to the world over which Reagan presided that it made sense to say, well, if he, were, if he had still been in office, what would he have done about this or this or this? Mm -hmm. Sometime in recent years, that just stopped making sense. Ronald Reagan slipped away. This world changed. And it makes no more sense to ask in a straightforward way, what would Ronald Reagan do about this problem or that problem or the other problem? Mm -hmm. Would he have supported a wall? What would he do about taxes right now? Right. What would he have thought about the Fed? How should they rate? These questions just are not coherent questions. The times have changed so much that it's impossible to go to his record mm -hmm. and say, oh, he did this about that then, therefore he would do this about that now. Just doesn't make any more sense than asking, what would Abraham Lincoln do about interest rates? Or right. what would George Washington do about a, it? Just it, These are not coherent questions anymore. So, so that whole line of inquiry is out. What we're left with, I think, we're left with his principles, we're left with the way he was president, and we're left with a certain approach to, ex to an extremely difficult set of circumstances. So I think I'll offer this, and then I want to hear what you have to say about this too, because I'm unwilling to hold forth, Bill. I have to know what you think about this. I'm willing to do this as a conversation, but I can't, I, I know I, I, I've come to a few, too few conclusions to hold forth too terribly long on my own. Mm -hmm. So when Reagan took office in 1979, 
you will remember dimly. I'm a little older than you, so I remember it more vividly. And the rising generation remembers it not at all. But when Reagan took office in 1979, interest rates were in double digits. We had just been through a decade in which we had suffered the national humiliations of Watergate, a defeat in Vietnam, and a year, a solid year, <clears throat> during which Iran held Americans hostage. For much of the 70s, the Soviets were on the march. That was the decade in which they transformed a, still a largely coastal fleet into a major blue water navy able to, able to counter us virtually ship for ship. They had achieved uh, predominance in conventional forces in Eastern Europe. They had placed intermediate range nuclear missiles, hundreds of them, the number came to something like 600 in Eastern Europe, capable of striking targets in Western Europe, which of course was intended to peel NATO away from the United States. If the Soviets could threaten London or, or Bonn with nuclear weapons with the United States, but not the United States with those particular kinds of weapons, would, would, would we really be willing to extend the nuclear umbrella to to save Bond, for example. All right. So things were really bad, really bad when he took office. Things are pretty bad now, but it's important to note that they're not uniquely bad. They're not singularly bad. I've often heard people say, well, yes, of course, but the Civil War was worse. Yes, the Civil War was worse. Right. But 1979 was pretty bad, still within the living memory of a third of Americans, the country's been through something in many ways about as difficult as the situation we face now. So that there is a parallel. And I think it, right. it does make some sense to say, how did Reagan comport himself? Mm -hmm. What do you think? Um, interesting. So I 1980 was the first presidential election in which I could vote. Uh, I think that's the same for you too. Yes, it is. It is the case. It is the I, case. I did not vote for Ronald Reagan in 1980. I did not vote for the incumbent Jimmy Carter. I did not vote for John Anderson. I did not cast a presidential ballot. I did not vote for Reagan, Peter, because I had just registered for the draft. And I was very concerned as somebody who is not really suitable to be fighting in a war. I would be the first man shot, I think. I was very concerned about being in a swamp in Nicaragua. That I thought that Reagan uh, was very aggressive in terms of foreign policy. He would get us bogged down in Nicaragua, and there I'd be. So I did not vote for him, but here's what I came to realize. And I'm going to tell you. Wait, so you abstained or did you write somebody in? I abstained. I abstained. I see. I see. I'm famous about this. I, look, you and I are Californians, Peter. Every four years I get to vote for governor. Every four years I write in George Schultz or Condoleezza Rice. It's just, <laughs> it's a game we play. But let me tell you a story. My my besainted grandmother, Peter, my father's mother, she was not much uh, interested in politics. I don't think I ever had a political conversation with her. I don't think I've ever heard her talk about politics. I think she was the embodiment, Peter, of what they used to say, you know, vote for the man, not the party. Right. Um, so I think she was just a judge of character. Um, shortly before she passed away, she died in 1985. My father uh, took her to Arlington National Cemetery. We, we all lived in Arlington at the time. And um, he took her to see Reagan speak. And I assume, Peter, this would have been the president's annual visit, probably to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, where the right, president right. gives a very patriotic speech. And as they walked away together, my father told me that she said something very interesting. She turned to him and she said of Reagan, you won't see his like again. Mm. And here's what I think she was getting at, Peter. Um, two things. Number one, my grandmother was born in 1908, uh, three mm. years before Ronald Reagan. So she was very much forged by the Great Depression. 
as was Ronald Reagan, central to his upbringing. Now, you could say George H.W. Bush, born in 1924, he lived in affluency. He was not really hit by the Great Depression, but Reagan in the Midwest saw it firsthand, and so that had a searing effect on him. I think the second thing she was getting at, Peter, was that he just filled the shoes of the presidency, that he just looked and acted as I guess befitting of an actor, but he just really filled the role of a president. And if you look at the president since then, Peter, this has been a struggle in American politics, somebody who really fills the office. I'd agree with every word of that. I'd yep. agree with every word of that. that my father, I, my parents were a little on the older side when I was born. So this, this is, my father is close to your grandmother. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was born in 1919. And the depression, the depression marked him for the rest of his life. He was one of those fathers. I think it was that generation. At Christmas, he used to drive us all crazy because he would insist that we take the wrapping paper off extremely carefully from each gift. We'd hand it over to him and he would sit there very carefully folding it or rolling it back onto a roller so that it could be used next year. And indeed, I think I was a teen before I saw new wrapping paper a save, roll of new wrapping paper come into the house. You saw save, the same thing? Save with my grandmother. Save the bows. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so Ronald Reagan, he grows up in the central plain of the United States. He's born in 1911. I once, in a speech, I can't remember what it, in any event, I put it a speech about, I put in a quotation about Lincoln. And Reagan got to this, and he paused and he ad-libbed. And he said, when I was a boy in Illinois, on Veterans Days, there were still plenty of Civil War veterans who would march through town. Right. So he's there, he sees men who fought in the Civil War. In 1911, you're really only three or four generations away from the people who broke up the sod in the central plains of this country. So he's close in all kinds of ways, still not to the founding generation. He's not close in that sense to the founding fathers who wrote the Declaration and then the Constitution, but he is very close to the pioneering generation, Mm -hmm. the people who broke the sod and established the homesteads and fought in the Civil War. And when he went to college, to Little Eureka College, they still have the stump there. But there was still a tree on the college campus called the recruiting tree. And that was because it was under that tree that the union recruiter stood to give his speech. And if you wanted to, if you joined the union army as a young man at Eureka, you stepped forward and that tree was where it all happened. That tree was still standing when Ronald Reagan was an undergraduate at Eureka College in Dixon, Illinois. Okay. So we've got that generation. He's close to the founding, which I believe gives him a sense of possibility. He's seen what Americans can do because he knows Americans who did big things. He's close to the generation that did very big things. And then he told a story, he told part of the story often and in public, you may recognize it, that one of the ways he worked his way through Eureka College was by washing dishes in a girl's in a sorority and he would pause and he would say it wasn't the worst job i've ever had and it would get a chuckle and i heard him say that a dozen times right 
And then there was a speech meeting in which he said the same joke and we all chuckled. But then he continued and he, he said he could remember one evening when he was washing dishes and another fellow was drying them and they got into a little bit of a dispute because the other fellow said, well, when the next war comes, we'll solve the problem by just flying over enemy cities and dropping bombs on them from airplanes. Mm -hmm. And President Reagan, this is in the Oval Office, President Reagan said, well, I told him, no, no, we would never, we could never do that. We could never attack civilians. We were Americans. And then it was just a kind of a silence. And he didn't have to say anything else because we all thought Hiroshima, Dresden. And this was in the context of whether he meant it with the Strategic Defense Initiative or whether it was purely a bargaining chip. Mm -hmm. And he was addressing that point obliquely. But to him, to him, war on civilians was something that you could hardly can it was it was just wrong morally and, and so we got the point he really meant the strategic defense initiative he wanted a way of protecting civilians against nuclear weapons so what i'm saying here is in this one man he can reach to the in his own mind in his own experience with his own eyes he's seen people who fought in the civil war and there he sits in the oval office and he endured the depression and the second world war and there he sits in the oval office remaking American nuclear policy. It was just an exceptional span. And that particular, we won't see that like again. Well put. Uh, Peter, a colleague of ours recently was in Palm Beach. He told me the story the other night, and he happened to be attending a dinner at which Ron DeSantis spoke, the governor of Florida. I have too many colleagues who get to Palm Beach, and I never get there myself. I don't understand what's going so We'll have to discuss this, Bill, yeah, at some yeah, point. Yeah. You, you and me both, brother. Uh, here's what our colleague took away from this. And keep in mind, this is Palm Beach, Peter. So this is ground central, ground zero for Donald Trump. This is where he lives. Right. This is where a lot of Trump people went after the presidency. Right. Here's what our colleague noticed. He said, number one, Ron DeSantis is giving basically a 2024 speech, or you believe he's running for president, which has moved away from Donald Trump in 2016. DeSantis is emphasizing schools reopening and Florida being a rather free state compared to more restrictive states like California. In other words, red versus blue. Right. This is not Donald Trump talking about border walls or the forgotten man. This is a new set of issues, which DeSantis is adopting. Second observation, the audience lapped it up. And then the third observation is that, as he told me, this is not Ronald Reagan. This is Ron DeSantis gives more of a slash and burn speech than he does stories as Ronald Reagan would. He's not talking about a city on the hill. He's not really selling you on, on optimism as Reagan did, a belief in America. He's more pointing out what the other guys do wrong. So the question, Peter, in this day and age, do you think Ronald Reagan's style would still work for a presidential candidate? Can you get away with storytelling and being an optimist, or do you have to take out the enemy? Now, keep, in, keep in mind, Reagan Reagan was obviously critical of the left. He did oh, yes, yes. and all that, but it was never it was never personal. It was never personal. Um, <clears throat> I'm thinking back now to ages ago when I asked uh, Lynn Nofziger, could Ronald Reagan get elected governor of California today? This Lynn has been dead for ten or twelve years, so this was a while ago, and Lynn Nofziger just said. Ronald Reagan could always get elected. He just had such a connection with people. So there's something, all right. I don't know, I'm thinking this through as you, you asked me a question and I'll think it through out loud for a moment or two. Mm -hmm. Michael Barone, where, I, I'll get the terms wrong. The idea is Michael Barone's and I'm now going to botch it. But the argument that he made someplace was that there are moments when people want 
comfortable politicians. And then there are moments when people want politicians with rough edges. Mm -hmm. I think he called them crunchy politicians or spiky politicians or something of that nature. And this feels in all kinds of ways like a moment when our side, Republicans, conservatives, really want a fight. They want to fight er. Right. People are sick of COVID. Here's, here's a political note for you. Well, I was in Texas for a conference that got canceled because of weather, but I was in Texas last week. Two items. I'll give you two items. Snapshot of Texas, mm -hmm. where it's about what you'd expect, that the Texans with whom I spoke, and these are sophisticated people, investors, business people, mm -hmm. Texas being Texas, they're angry with Governor Greg Abbott, right? who, who in almost any other state would be considered a rock-ribbed conservative, but he enforced a lockdown. It didn't last all that long, certainly not by California standards. Excuse me, he didn't enforce a statewide lockdown. He, he put in place a mask mandate, much lighter thing. And there are Texans who are furious with, with, with Greg Abbott. He's got to go through a primary. To, uh, he's up for re-election. Nobody thinks he'll lose the primary, but there may, he may, there's a, his opponent, a member of the Texas Senate, his campaign is vote for a real Republican. Right. And on the one hand, you say, oh, God bless Texas. It's the only place where Greg Abbott would get attacked from the right. But on the other hand, people are angry. That's Texas. Now, here's the surprise for you. I have a friend who lives in Greenwich, Connecticut. Yes, Greenwich, Connecticut, home of the Bushes, home of blue bloods of all kinds. People make their money in Manhattan and build mansions out in the, the Connecticut Gold Coast of Greenwich and Darien out to Westport. It's wealth and sophistication and left-wing Republicans, if you are a Republican and centrist Democrat, okay, you, you get the scene. Mm -hmm. And guess what just happened in Greenwich? The Greenwich Town Council just got captured by conservative Republicans. There's an election underway right now, campaign underway right now for the Darien School Board. And it looks as though a bunch of really conservative moms are going to take over the Darien school board. And so my friend said, here's what's happening. All throughout Gold Coast, Connecticut, you've got people paying very high taxes for really good schools. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, even richer people who send their kids to private schools. And both have been shut down. And there are, the way he put it to me was there are thousands of mothers with Ivy League degrees who have been secretly watching Fox News. People are angry. People are angry. Even the matrons of Darien and Greenwich are angry. All right. All of that said, I just have to believe that human nature, I'm giving, I'm fumbling toward an answer here, and then we'll let you, then I want to hear what you have to say. But Donald Trump got to be too much for people, got to be for a lot of people. He was too much from the get-go. But I I supported most of his policies. By the way, I draw a sharp distinction between Trump before COVID and Trump after COVID and then going into the election when he... But there were three years there when I supported most of his policies. But even for me, just calm down down stop the fighting stop that horrible irritating background noise 
And I do think that Ronald, Ronald Reagan could be quite pointed. You remember the great line in the election of 1980, a recession is when your neighbor loses his job. Right. A depression is when you lose your job and a recovery is when Jimmy Carter loses his job. Right. Now that's very pointed, but it also, it always elicited a laugh. There was something heartwarming about it. Right. I, I still have to believe that Ron DeSantis ought to be careful. Mm-hmm. He ought to study up a little on Ronald. He's clearly, he studied up on Donald Trump, how to be Trump without being Trump. But he ought to study up a little bit about Ronald Reagan. I do think human nature, it's in all of us. We want to fight at moments, perhaps. But over the longer period, they want to see a politician who's capable of a certain calm, who's capable of comedy, who's capable of reaching out to other Americans. We are edging into, and at moments find ourselves in, a cultural civil war. And I don't think anybody's happy about that. What do you think? I think there are elements of today's politics that Reagan, uh, or he with this, so he passed away in 2004, I believe. So it's been mm-hmm. almost 20 years, Peter. That's so right. it's been a long time. So there are elements he would recognize based upon what he experienced. This is a man who was a Democrat. That's right. And, and then became a Republican. Why did he say? I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. Um, so he he changed political stripes. He would have lived through the Dixie Crap movement with Strom Thurmond. Correct. He would have experienced George Wallace in the 1960s and 1970s. He would have seen elements of of you know populist politics. He would have seen Huey Long for God's sake. That's right. He was that far back. So I think in terms of unrest, he would recognize that. But I think it's the civility, Peter, that would probably level him. So you mentioned that he that he you know, mentioned Jimmy Carter by name, but mentioned Jimmy Carter's job. Uh, That is far from calling him stupid Jimmy Carter or lazy Jimmy Carter or incompetent Jimmy Carter. In other words, it's not the, you know, it's not the pejorative attached to him. I think the challenge for, to explain modern day politics for Ronald Reagan would be to show him just the spew that is tossed every day on the likes of Twitter and social media and what goes on every day on cable television, depending which channel the hate's coming from the left or the right, if you will, and trying to say, Mr. President, this is how we do politics today. And I think he might look at it in great, great dismay and think, my God, what have we done to ourselves? Mm-hmm. I'm sure he would. By the way, one measure of how what a completely different world we live in, as far as I am aware, Ronald Reagan never sent or received a single email in his entire life. Things have changed. We live in a different world. Or I can remember when Gergen, David Gergen interviewed me before I got hired onto the speechwriting staff, Gergen had in his West Wing office, the same television console that Haldeman had had built HR Haldeman, Richard Nixon's (coughs) chief of staff and the television console. Right. See, so you, you're so old, you know what I mean by a television console. There was this big box of a television, and it, it had one big screen, and right next to it, two smaller screens. And that was so, first Haldeman and then David Gergen could watch all three evening news broadcasts at the same time. Right. And so right through the 1980s, here's what you had to worry about if you were running the communications or press effort for the White House. In the morning... The New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. And then you'd have staff that would alert you if there was a suddenly a, an article of temporary importance in the Chicago Tribune or the LA Times. But it was those three. You read those. Mm-hmm. And then in the evening, CBS News, NBC News, and ABC News. And really, if you could handle those three, you were fine. And each one of those was on a 24-hour 
news cycle. You had to know maybe two, three dozen reporters and a dozen editors, and you were doing a really good job if you got yourself on a on for personal relations, uh, first name basis with um, Punch Salzberger at the New York Times. In other words, it was a finite, you and I could sit down and list the number of people that the press secretary really needed to know. Today, right. who, who, everybody in America has a blog. Who knows what Rogan might say during one of his daily three hour interviews. Right. Uh, it's just, that is clearly very different. Well, thank you for mentioning the TV console. One of the one of the worst purchases in my life, and a long list of bad purchases, by the way. When I finally came into money in my twenties, I bought a Sony television. No knock against Sony; they make fine televisions. I think Peter, Peter, this was a console. It was a wooden console with a thirty-two inch screen. This oh, you splashed out. This was a large screen back in the nineteen eighties. Thirty-two yes. inches, you know, half of what we buy now today, and surrounded by wood. Peter, it weighed. Weighed, weighed basically the, the same weight as an automobile. You, you could not, you could roll up, but you couldn't lift it anywhere. It's impractical, but had to have it. But um, let's get now to a little bit of Reagan philosophy. You were richer. Here. I had at the same time. I I had a Sony, Sony Trinitron. Yes. This is what I watched the 1987 the tear down this wall speech. But that must have been a diagonal of oh 16 inches, something like yes. that. That was my television. Yeah. So okay, we could talk about one positive advancement then in terms of TVs. Uh, let's talk Reagan and the Eleventh Commandment, Peter. Uh, is the eleventh commandment dead? Should we declare it dead? Well, we, uh, th thou shalt not thou shalt not speak ill of a fellow Republican. Yes. Um, it seems dead in a state. Course, like Wyoming. It seems dead like a state Wyoming, where Liz Cheney no. is running for her life, Alaska, or Lisa Murkowski. By the way, do you have you seen polls in Wyoming? I haven't. This I haven't. Like, I've yeah. seen I've seen some straw polls and snap polls, but I've not seen anybody actually go on the ground there and poll six hundred people and get a sampling. Uh, I think she's in for a tough race, though, because this is statewide sentiment. Right, right, right. And Wyoming went for Trump by what? I think it was the largest margin in the nation, even more than Alaska. Is that right? Uh, I think West Virginia might have been the largest, but it's Mar it's right. it's a it's an easy thirty five point state, I would guess. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, she as as Ricky Ricardo says, she has some explaining to do. <laughs> well, she's she like many of the Democrats in the House has simply decided that her career is over in nine months. Right. I think. And that's a terrible thing. In my judgment, most of the time, it's a terrible thing when a politician says, okay, I'm out. Mm -hmm. I'm either going to retire and make some money or retire and move to Florida, or I'm going to be defeated. So I'll retire to get out of the way. Right. I'm out. Now for the next year, I will be so self-righteous and so self-indulgent and so preachy that everybody will get sick of me. That's that's the stage I think that we're in with, with a number of Democrats, and I'm sorry to say also with with Liz Cheney. Not that she doesn't have a point or two, but please, no, sorry. But, now where but, were we going? But the this? but the eleventh commandment. Uh, oh, the eleventh commandment. Let's, so let's go, Reagan. Let's go, back, let's go back to Texas, for example. Uh, you yep. mentioned the governor's race. It's also an attorney general's race, which I think has three Republicans running, including George P. Bush. Correct. So there are Bush haters in Texas now, even though you think. You know, the father has an airport named after him and a statue in Houston, one of my favorite airports to connect through, by the way, as a Wall Street <laughs> Journal story. You can't beat that. You know, you're not in California. Yes, that's right. That's exactly see, right. See the Wall Street Journal and cigarettes for sale. So, you know, you're not in California. Um, the, the son, of course, governed Texas, went on to become president. But the son now is in a difficult race. And there will be people in that race who will take Bush and turn it into a four letter word. Yes. Yes. So thou shalt not speak ill of a fellow Republican. Fellow Republican 
made a lot of sense for a sitting president. Ronald Reagan was pretty sharp on his fellow Republicans when he was running for president, when he was in a primary challenge himself. So, uh, I mean, he was sharp on them in the way that we've already noted he could be sharp. It was never really personal. It never had a hateful or spiteful or even a really deeply angry edge, but still he could be, he could be, he could, he could use humor to cut the other fellow down to size and mm -hmm. did often. All right. So I'm not sure that even he observed that too terribly scrupulously when he was in a primary fight himself. Um, but your your question, I guess, is this: the personal attack. I am I just old fashioned? I would like to believe that it doesn't work very well, but of course that's wrong. When Donald Trump referred to Jeb Bush, George P. Bush's father, mm -hmm. and John, Donald Trump referred to Jeb Bush, what did he call him? Sleepy Jeb, or he had some epithet, and all the polls showed that that Jeb Bush after that debate, Jeb Bush's numbers just fell it seems it was, seems to afford so i honestly i don't know what to make of all i this. think he was low energy jeb low energy jeb yes. low energy jeb so on the one hand that was an ad hominem remark i i myself think extremely highly of jeb bush and he was my candidate until he was out altogether but on the other hand it felt true it was a it was a comment on his debate performance i don't know if he'd been counseled to hold back in the debates but he did look low energy in mm -hmm. the debates he's not a low energy person and he was a spectacularly good governor of florida right so trump i mean this is a, so you tell me what you think of that on the one hand it's an ad hominem attack on the other hand it's raising an issue that's important in presidents right. a president has to have a certain animal energy a certain animal vitality trump had it jeb bush does have it but did not appear to during those debates mm -hmm. i just don't know i just I don't know I think history tells us, Peter, that uh, armies that lose tend to lose because they fight the last war. They don't yes. fight the current war. They fight under previous conditions. If you look at World War One and the many tragedies of men with machine guns fighting by 19th right. century rules and so forth, uh, the Bush family, I think, fell prey to this at least twice, Peter. One was Jeb Bush in 2016, thinking he could run a traditional Bush campaign. We're going to double and triple down in South Carolina. That'll be our firewall, and we'll go on to victory. And he did not really assess the field correctly. He didn't assess Donald Trump and the dynamic of Trump on Republican politics. Um, and I know this personally, Peter, because once upon a time in my life, I wanted to be Peter Robinson. I wanted to write White House speeches, and I had a path all cleared out. I worked on the 92 campaign which if you go to a Bush reunion is a very special thing to say because people will put an L on their forehead <laughs> because of the six times that Bush's father and son ran on a November ticket. It's the only one that managed to lose a national election. So you're, you're a loser by definition. I worked my fanny off in that campaign. I figured I'd be rewarded with a position writing speeches in a cabinet post. And if I did my job well, I'd get to play the big house maybe in the last year or two of the White House. Not ideal, but I'd get to be Peter Robinson for you know a day, a week, or a month or so forth. Uh, but ruin. Yeah, welcome but, to that job, but go ahead. Well, but ruin Peter in part because Bush 41, George H.W. Bush was playing by the previous campaign's rules. He still thought it was the 1980s. He didn't understand that politics had shifted post-Cold War, post-Berlin Wall. And you now had to be a much more empathetic president. You now had to kind of get down and get dirty. 
uh, as a president the way presidents didn't speaking to kids in classrooms and you know looking corporate casual and things like that he didn't understand that and it cost him mildly so i think that's one of the lessons here peter but uh Nikki so what, Haley, do you make, what do you make of of ron DeSantis yourself I think that he is spot on with this message of schools. I think the right. potency, right. which we just cannot underestimate. When you look at polls, Peter, and you see suddenly Republicans gaining with African-Americans and even more notably Latinos, yes. um, COVID is largely to speak for this because why? Uh, COVID has greatly inconvenienced those two sectors of the economy, those two groups, because you know they're not doing Zoom jobs like you and I do. Right. They're actually going out doing, you know, honest to God labor and right. so restrictions. You know, blue states are a killer to them. But secondly, Peter, schools. If you're a Latino parent in California, you understand that schools exist. Well, in part, schools exist for daycare because you can't stay at home with your kids. So the schools are in the business looking after your kids during the hours. But you know, if you're a good parent, that is your kid's ticket to something better. And when you see the schools being locked down, when you see teachers unions messing with reopenings, your kids getting a second and third rate education, it makes you mad, Peter. And I suspect it makes you start looking at the other team to see maybe if the other team teach you better. So I think DeSantis is on target with that and the general message of freedom. But I think the question is going to be one of likability, which gets us Mm -hmm. back to Ronald Reagan and that, you know, Reagan just had this great ability to be criticized in so many ways. He's a warmonger. He's, you know, he's clueless and so forth, but you saw him on TV and what did people see in the televised event? He seems like a reasonable guy. We can live with this guy. Right. That was a challenge for DeSantis. Um, Let's shift here to the Reagan Library, Peter. The Reagan Library is doing something which I think is very smart and very good for the Republican Party. They have uh, launched what they call a Time for Choosing series of speeches, Peter. The Time for Choosing being Ronald Reagan's famous speech in 1964 that really began you know, the path to governor of California. By the way, would Ronald Reagan want to be the governor of today's California? Would he want to? I think not. <laughs> I went down a whole road of this the other day, Peter. I thought, would he want to be governor of California? Considering the, the legislature, I don't think he'd want to work with them. Looking at just the drift of the state, he might what not. Was the, what was the balance of the legislature when he was elected in 66? Do you remember? If anybody would remember this, you would remember it. You would have looked it up and read about it. Democratic, obviously, because he had to deal with uh, the great uh, Jess Unruh, Big Daddy uh, Unruh, as they called him. Uh, so he had a, in theory, hostile legislature to deal with, but it was much more synonymous to Congress in the 1980s with Tilk O'Neill, Democrats you could work with, Democrats right. who right. understood the economy and basically were old Pauls who were open to doing business with a, with a right. governor. Right. Not today's by any means. But then I thought in larger terms, would Ronald Reagan want to live in California, Peter? Um, you know, you know, who would be his friends in Hollywood? Would he would he want to be in this state with its crazy ideas on economy and taxation? Would he would he be in Wyoming right now riding horses? Well, he might be in Wyoming. He might be in Texas. Yeah. You know, I asked our mutual friend Pete Wilson, mm-hmm. what what advice would you give a young Republican who wants to get in a young Republican in California who wants to get into politics? And Pete answered immediately with three words. Go to Texas. Move to Texas. Move to Texas. On the other hand, I just t- there was a stubbornness about Reagan, and there was also let's not forget an aggressiveness about him. He took on Pat Brown, and one sitting governor, Edmund G. Pat Brown, and won by a million votes. <laughs> he took on the Soviet Union and beat them. There was he was he was so gentle, so serene, so sweet and humorous that we tend to forget how aggressive he was. Even in his own career, he was aggressive. He talked his way into his first job as a radio announcer. 
He talked his way into a screen test with Warner Brothers when he came out to California. He talked his way into the jo- the role of uh, of jo- of George Gipp in the uh, the famous Newt Rockney movie. Okay, and I don't know. I think Reagan might have felt a little bit. I'll flatter you of what you feel, what I feel sometimes, which is somehow it's against the rules to give up on California. Mm-hmm. We may not be able reasonably to expect to win in our lifetimes, but this state is so beautiful and so full of talent, and it's 11% of the population that you just are not allowed to write it off. It's still worth the fight, I think. And I suspect the sheer orneriness, ornery side of Reagan, which we seldom saw, but he was a very determined and very aggressive man. I think he might have said, I ain't moving. I'm going to stand here and fight. So if he could stir down the Soviets, he could stir down the California Teachers Association is what you're Far harder job to do, of course, but he might have been willing to take it on. Good point. Uh, So the Reagan Library, Peter, and the Time for Choosing series of speeches, Nikki Haley, there have been five so far. Nikki Haley gave the last one in October. Here's what the Reagan Library wants each speaker to do, Peter, when they come to that building. They want them to answer the following questions. Number one, why are you a Republican? Number two, what should the Republican Party stand for? Number three, how is the party? Are we succeeding? How are we failing? Number four, what foreign policy, what foreign and domestic policy positions are critical for the Republican Party to take in the future? And then five, what are the Republican philosophies we can all agree on? Put on your speechwriter's hat for a second. That's that's not a small assignment. No, it's not. But take, take well, let's say, let's let's take number three in that, Peter. How is the party? Are we succeeding? How are we failing? So you were tasked with having to cobble together a speech for any 2024 aspirant. How would you answer that question? How would you approach it? Uh, very difficult to answer that question, absent the personality of Donald Trump, because how are we right. failing? We have this figure sort of sitting on the party like a mattress. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I may You haven't asked this question, but I'll answer it anyway. Will Trump run again? I'm beginning to doubt it. Right. I'm beginning to, first of all, there's a fade that's taking place. The polls are beginning to show this. You begin to see some right. emboldened prospective primary opponents Ron DeSantis is looking more and more like a guy who's going to run, whether Donald Trump wants him to run or not, for example. And then there's also this internal dynamic where when Donald Trump descended the escalator in 2016, he had a program. Half of the country objected to the program, but he actually said, I'm going to make America great again. I'm going to do something for you, the American people. We'll build a wall. We'll cut taxes. We will rebuild our military. He had a program, and the point of the program was, this is what I, Donald Trump, will do for you. And now what he's saying is, I'm aggrieved. I've been mistreated. I've been badly done by. The Russia hoax continues to claim that the last election was stolen. And it's up to you, the American people, to vote for me to do right by me. Now it's flipped. It's not, here's what I'll do for you. It's here's what you owe me. That is really not a terribly compelling underlying message in my opinion. Okay, absent Trump, I actually think the party is in tremendously good shape. Mm -hmm. I look across the country and the talent at the next generation, the next level down Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz, Ben Sass, 
you and I could go on and on and on naming these really impressive, tough, smart figures. Right. Um, the, the knock against the Republican Party is yes, yes, yes. But at the moment, it's just anti-Biden. Well, actually, I don't buy that. The press can say that. <coughs> but I actually work in a think tank. You may have heard of it, Bill. You work there, too. And there are people working on policy proposals all the time. There's tremendous intellectual ferment. How do we handle China? What should we do about Russia? What should the Fed be doing right now? And all of this, I have to be very careful here, because as you and I both know, the Hoover Institution is not partisan. Right. At the same time, we know that many Republicans are drawing on our work, the work of the American Enterprise Institute, mm -hmm. the work of the Heritage Foundation, and so forth. So, and look at the polls. The Republican Party between now and November is a long, 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 long time in politics. All kinds of things could go wrong. Right. But it's very hard to imagine anything going wrong so badly that Republicans won't take recapture the house and i'm beginning to think it's more likely than not and on a good day i think it's much more likely than not that the republicans will pick up on net between two and four seats in the senate right recapturing the senate and then if donald trump as i'm beginning to suspect and as i certainly hope chooses not to run again and we have a primary that's a a wrestling match among Glenn Youngkin and Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, and the other side is stuck with Joe Biden or Kamala. I, I just think the Republican Party, in in beginning, just a dozen months from now, could be in charge of the country with brilliant, attractive Tim Scott, attractive, appealing Marco Rubio. It goes on and on. Young talent alive with ideas. I, I'm very optimistic. And I just think the Republican Party, out of power now, but the Republican Party is getting a lot more right than it's getting wrong. It's all taking place just off stage. If what you're looking at is the press, if, you, if you're watching CNN, or even Fox is more intent on, of the opinion shows on Fox are much more intent on hammering Biden than actually taking looks, deep looks at what's taking place within the Republican Party. So it's all taking place just outside the spotlight. But what's taking place is very impressive, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. So here's what Nikki Haley did at the Reagan Library, Peter. First of all, she did something that is speech writing 101, even a, even a poor man's speech writer like me would have done this. Number one, she praised Ronald Reagan for his optimism. You yes. do that when you go to the library. I you think that's a right? Right, right. gimme. Then she did the astute thing, what we started this podcast with. She made Reagan relevant by linking today's conditions <laughs> to those of 1980 when he ran. Smart. Right. But then right. the third thing she did, Peter, she did not mention three words, Donald John Trump. No mention of Trump in her speech. So he's literally, he's the 800-pound gorilla in the yeah, room. Yeah. He's there, but we just don't talk about him. I, I, I There may be listeners, I, I want to, repeat that during the first three years before COVID, the economy was doing very, there were all kinds of good things that happened during the Trump administration. Right. And I even in various ways came to admire him personally for his toughness. Lord knows to be vilified by all of the press day in and day out and to have the FBI turn on 
the, the sheer stamina that it required to get up every morning and go to the office and be defiant enough to do the job, I thought was very impressive. Still in all, he's yesterday's man. He is yesterday's man. Glenn Youngkin is today. Nikki Halley is today. Ron DeSantis is today. All right, let's talk about the guy who currently holds the job, Joe Biden. So Joe Biden, we can agree, is at a ditch. Peter, I saw a poll out today, has him at 41%. Uh, Ronald Reagan would look at this and he might nod his head saying, been there, done that in this regard, Peter. Uh, we think of Reagan and we think of the two glorious victories he wins in 1980 right. and 1984. And we'll I'll mention some dynamics of 1984 uh, in a minute here, just how staggering they were. But Reagan was he, a man who knew how to peak at the right time. He certainly did. Uh, but in 1982, Peter, uh, his approval rating remained stuck under 50%. And we we lost 27 or was it 27 20, or 26 seats in the House? 26 in the House, one in the Senate and seven governorships, Peter. Yeah. And that's really the spanking when you lose seven governorships, you're being yes, beaten very hard at the state level. Right. Ronald Reagan bounces back. And then Peter, in 1984, Ronald Reagan, as we know, carries 49 states. He captured almost 49% of the national vote, Peter. And the election says, if you toss out the Bush victory in 1988, which I would write off largely as a third Reagan election. I, I, I love George H.W. Bush, for whom I worked when he was vice president. But it was right. Ronald. That was a th people were voting for a third Ronald Reagan term. I, I felt he, I feel to this he, day. He had a tailwind, Peter, uh, in 1988. We can agree since then, uh, no presidential candidates cleared 53 percent. So who Reagan, got, who, who got to 53? Uh, Obama uh, almost got to 53, but nobody. Bush got over 53, but that's it. Um, right. No Clinton president. Got, Clinton got 43 in the first and, election. And just under 50, what is real like, drove him crazy. Pearl Reagan had him, him under 50, drove him nuts. Um, the thing is with Reagan, Peter, we're seeing mandates that just don't exist. He won 93 of 100 states. Uh, John McCain in 2008, Peter, probably the worst presidential drubbing uh, in recent cycles. He got about 46% of the national vote. He still managed to carry 22 states. Mm -hmm. If there is a Democratic meltdown in 2022, and it spills over into 2024. Let's put Kamala Harris at the top of the ticket and agree, okay? They're <laughs> okay, in trouble. Let's. She, she That's will lose. That's too easy. That's too she, easy, Bill. No, she could get drunk, Peter, but she would still carry 15 to 20 states. So, she'd carry California, New York, Massachusetts. She'd carry New England. She'd carry California. Yeah, she'd carry both coast, New England right. and and the Pacific Coast. And right. that's that's uh, California's fifty four electoral votes now, right? Right. But we, you will not see one. you will not see a repeat of the Reagan experience, where Reagan carried twice the state in which you were born and raised, and twice carried the state in which you currently reside. Correct. No, no Republicans are going to carry New York and California. So Reagan had that coast to coast appeal that you just don't see in this day and age. Um, but getting back to the Biden question. So he is looking at a midterm beatdown, as did Reagan. But Reagan bounces back. So mm -hmm. what does Joe Biden do to bounce back, Peter? There is nothing Joe Biden can do to bounce back because he is Joe Biden. <laughs> Explain With that. Ronald Reagan, the problem was not the president. With Ronald Reagan, the problem was that in, in 1982, we were suffering a very serious recession, and Ronald Reagan was perfectly, I shouldn't say perfectly happy, he was of course unhappy that we would have to suffer a recession, but he was willing to suffer that recession because that recession arose largely, primarily, from Paul Volcker, the Fed chairman, putting the brakes on the dollar to wring inflation out of the economy. and. Ed Meese has said, Ed Meese talked it over with Ronald Reagan, Milton Friedman talked it over with Ronald Reagan, and Reagan just made the calculation that if that is what has to be done to break inflation, then let it happen. So 
by 1983, the stock market, 83, the tax cuts take effect. I think it's August of 83, the stock market finally starts to tick up. And by the time of the presidential election of 1984, inflation has dropped down to low single digits. We're creating over 100,000 jobs each month, which in those days, given the size of the economy then, was a very big number. And it really was that phrase that he ran on it morning again in America may sound trite or banal, but it, he won 49 out of 50 states because it was people felt it. People really felt that that was true. So the problem wasn't Ronald Reagan. The problem wasn't even his policies. The problem was just take not just the problem was taking the time for those policies, a sound dollar Volcker get inflation, squeeze the excess money out of the economy, tax cuts. The policies were correct, but they took time to work. Yeah. Biden's policies are incorrect. He's too old, too unwell, too in the thrall of the left wing of his party to change course, I think. He's just, he is 13 months into his presidency, he is a lame duck. Nobody takes him seriously. Everybody is just waiting him out. On the Democratic side, they're trying to figure out how to ride this out and find an attractive nominee in time for the next presidential election. I don't believe there's a there's a way out of that puzzle for them. But I, I the problem is Joe Biden. The problem yeah. is Joe Biden himself because he's too old and too feeble. And the problem is what's in Joe Biden's head. He's never been a principled or conviction politician. Never. Nobody would ever say that of Joe Biden. For the first 20 years of his now seemingly endless career, he he was a he was a coherent Democrat. He was a he, he could say and he and it meant something that he was a an Irish guy from Scranton, Pennsylvania. So he had a feel for the New Deal coalition. He had had a feel for working people. That's all gone. The people running his White House are now the progressive left, the woke left. For a president who spent so much time asleep, he's certainly woke. But, the, but I, just, I just, this is insoluble. It's insoluble. Right. You know, it's it crossed my mind, Peter, as I was uh, preparing for this podcast and I was thinking, you know, the obligatory, if Ronald Reagan were alive today, what would he think? And my first thought was Joe Biden. And what would he say? You mean Joe Biden Jr., right? <laughs> exactly. 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 I think one change for the Biden White House, Peter, um, something you can appreciate, I think speech writing uh, is something they need to seriously revisit in this regard. Um, historians are spending too much time writing the president's rhetoric. Um, you saw this when he gave his speech in Atlanta. Um, he talked about civil rights. He took a voting rights bill and tried to put it in the greater narrative of civil rights, Peter. Oh, that uh, thing was a catastrophe. Sorry, go ahead. Explain was, what he said. It was, it was a catastrophic. It was catastrophic on two fronts. Number one, it was just gross overreach um, and just, just, just too much. It's just too much. It was offensive. Secondly, Peter, cardinal sin of speech writing. He evoked a historical image that people don't know. Who knows who Bull Connor? Nobody knows who Bull Connor is in this day and age. That's right. You know, Theophilus Eugene Bull Connor, Commissioner of Public Safety, Birmingham, Alabama, for those who, who follow these things. But Theophilus was his actual first name? Theophilus Eugene Bull Connor was his name. You'd call yourself Bull, I think, if your name yes, is Yes, exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll give the guy the nickname now that I know his first name was Theophilus. <laughs> exactly. But no, you're giving the speech and you're trying to say essentially that somebody is worse than Hitler. So you're saying Peter Robinson is worse than Bull Connor. Huh? Uh -huh. <laughs> 
So, but no, you've had historians come in, Peter, and historians sold this president on the idea you can be FDR and LBJ rolled into one, not looking at the numbers in Congress. And now historians are involved in drafting his speeches and invoking history where history is not appropriate. So now, how it, do you know that? Have there been stories on who's writing stories, his speeches? Story, John Meacham in particular, the Meacham, presidential Meacham, historian, wrote a Meacham. book on George H.W. Uh, Bush. And so he's been all over. Remember, he was, was double dipping. Nothing but trouble. He all was right. double dipping. He was writing Biden's, he wrote Biden's convention speech and was commenting on what a brilliant speech it was. Oops, I can't, <laughs> can't do that. Uh, no, get the historians out of the way. Stop you know, selling people in history lessons that they don't even understand. So get the a better batch of speech writers. Yeah, and he'll still screw it up, would be my guess. The, uh, same, the same applies to the vice president who's looking for a speech writer right now, Peter. I don't know what you're doing with the free time or not, but she's, she wants to hire a speech writer. A speech well, writer is, just left. And this is, I'm her, sorry. Her, her woke speech writer gave her a speech to give the Naval Academy. She gave the commencement address. And it was just a long talk about political correctness, Peter. And here you are in a football stadium surrounded by all the names of all these places where Navy men have given blood and treasure, and you're talking PC, just... No, that is that is an F in speech writing. It is an F in speech writing. I I I'm I'm going to resist a little bit the notion that the speechwriters can solve the problem. Well, here, I mean, because, this this is the problem. It's that it's what I call the cool hand loop conundrum. Every time a president gets in a rough spot, what we have here is a failure to communicate. Yes. Well, yes, no, that's no, exactly it, right. No, it's that's not exactly what you're. Right. It's not what you're saying. It's just your policies are not good. <laughs> right. Right. That's exactly right. Ronald Reagan. Back to Ronald Reagan. By the time Ronald Reagan became president, mm -hmm. he had been giving speeches, most of which he wrote himself mm -hmm. since at least 1948, when he ran Hollywood for Truman to campaign for Harry Truman's reelection in 1948. Now, between 1948 and the time he gives the time for choosing speech in 64, right. he becomes a conservative. And here's the remarkable thing about that transformation. How did he become a conservative? He read and wrote and thought his way to that position. This right. is a man, I remember talking to Mike Reagan. Mike said he'd come home from high school and he'd throw his books down and he'd run in to see his father to say hello. Mm -hmm. And his father was always, in the, and Mike said, not sometimes, always in the same place. He was in the master bedroom, a big desk in the corner of the master bedroom, and Ronald Reagan was always there reading and writing. And so by the time he becomes president, he has his own, not only his own principles, his own stands on the issues, but his own voice. Nobody in the Reagan White House was ever trying to invent the voice or, of Ronald Reagan or to give him an image. He was a fully formed figure for the speechwriters to work with. We had something, you, you knew when you wrote a speech for Reagan, you could hear it in your mind's ear, so to speak, whether it was right for him or not, because he was already, he himself had done the work of making himself such a definite figure. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple more minutes and I'll, I'll, I'll let you go here, Peter. Um, just give us a little window into how you would write for Ronald Reagan, because you were about 30 years old when you went to the White House, I believe. When you were I was 25 when I went to work for Vice President Bush and 26 and a half or 27 when I went to work for President Reagan. Okay, so you are, you're a young man. Um, you do not have the same life experience as Ronald Reagan. There is an age gap of about 45 years or so, at least. <laughs> That's true. Uh, 
but yet he, he reminded me of my father though i mean there right. was some i knew some i knew i knew somebody like ronald reagan right what people fail to understand about political <laughs> speech writers they think oh you just write down a bunch of words and feed it to the guy and he reads it and everybody's good and it's the first mistake to make for a young speech writer thinking right. that what i will write he will read you have to put yourself in the man's head and you have to yeah. think how he thinks and think of thinking words that he likes so how did you channel ronald reagan oh Bill, I've been asked that question so many times over the years, and even now it's mysterious. Nothing I can ask you a nice trite banal question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, no, no, no. It's not trite or banal. It's difficult. It's really hard to make people understand. They said, well, uh, the most famous, indeed the only speech I wrote that anybody remembers is the Berlin Wall speech, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Right. And I tell the story of how that speech got written. Mm -hmm. And it's true that I wrote, I, I guess the president changed maybe a total of 20 words. Right. Aside from those 20, I wrote the remaining 2000. I wrote every word of that speech. And yet that speech remains entirely a Ronald Reagan speech. It's his speech, not mine. So how do you write for Ronald Reagan? There were six writers on staff at any given time. We were all in and out of each other's offices. We all loved Ronald Reagan. And by the way, that's an important point. As you know, Bill Sapphire founded a club for former presidential speechwriters, and we would get together every year and a half or so, and there'd be the Ford table and the Nixon table, and there were two tables that understood each other instinctively, even though our policies, our politics were different. The Kennedy table, table. and the Reagan table, right. because the Kennedy guys and the Reagan guys both loved their president. John Fitzgerald Kennedy was the biggest thing that had ever happened to Ted Sorensen. Mm -hmm. And Ronald Reagan was the biggest thing that had ever happened to us. Okay. So we love the man. We read his old speeches. We watch him closely. Uh, in the Reagan White House, the rule was that if you wrote a speech, you'd go see the president deliver, deliver it so you could see how he used it. You're there watching him all the time. Right. And I really believe that more than anybody else in the White House, the speechwriters I don't know how to put it, inhabited the president's mind. Right. So we, we, it sounds weird, but I don't know any other way to describe it. We sort of shared, we thought with the mind of Ronald Reagan. We wrote in the voice of Ronald Reagan. And that's why I counted it up the other day across the eight years of the Reagan presidency, 14 different people served as his speechwriter. But every Reagan speech sounds like Ronald Reagan. Interesting. Because, because, and I was so young that in all kinds of ways, I took his imprint in a certain sense. It was easier for me. I wasn't, I was, when I looked at Reagan, I, I was, I could see him. Uh, I, I didn't have 10 other politicians in my head or other people for whom I had worked. I just took his imprint because I was, I was soft wax at that point. And was that's, there a, one... that's a sloppy, floppy answer. So speechwriter writes a speech. It gets right. edited by the chief speechwriter. It goes out to staffing and all of this is and then comes back and we negotiate changes the pentagon the only person who ever wanted to toughen up speeches was oliver north by the way everybody else would want to would tend to water them down we'd fight right. and then we'd have irregular but very important meetings with the president himself um so th that's kind of a rough description of the process but 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 the main thing was that we were we were thinking with his mind or doing our best to do that 
Yes, I try to explain it as us, you subconsciously, as you write, you're almost listening to the man's voice. Oh, absolutely. And, and on a level, you know what words he likes, and you just write in a style that sounds like him. But you also have to understand what a good line is. And that's the takeaway from the Berlin Walls uh, episode, that you heard the line from a German citizen and thought, aha, we'll Ronald, Reagan, Ronald Reagan would like that line. Yes, yes, so, that's exactly right. Down. Final question, Peter. Should we be talking about the next Ronald Reagan, or should we be talking about the first fill-in-the-blank? I ask this because Democrats struggled in the vineyard for decades trying to find the next John Kennedy, uh, oh. each Democrat failing in various ways to be the next JFK. They thought Bill Clinton was the next JFK. He wasn't. In short, there really was no next John Kennedy. They should have been looking for the first so-and-so. And along comes Barack Obama, who becomes the first Barack Obama, if you will. Right. So should the Republicans, Peter, instead of trying to reinvent Ronald Reagan, be trying to find a new model? Call it a Reagan two, if you will, but just yeah. uh, just uh, not 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 Reagan one zero. In 1999, as Bill Buckley, William F. Buckley Jr., was preparing to take firing line off the air, mm-hmm. we were at, attending a conference together at the Reagan Library, as it happens. And Bill invited. He gave me a call. Come to my hotel room, and he said, "Peter, I've decided to recommend your program, Uncommon Knowledge, to the PBS network as a replacement for mine." And my face fell. And he saw my face fall, fall, fall. And he said, what's, what's wrong? And I said, I didn't even think I just respond. I said, Bill, I can't be you. And Bill, for the only time, I knew him quite well for quite a few years. For the only time, Bill got really quite angry with me. And he said, don't be me. Don't even think about being me. Be you. Now that sounds like a very trite exchange, but human beings are mysterious. Each of us is who he is. We are all distinctive mm-hmm. and it's a terrible mistake. Admire Ronald Reagan, learn from him, cherish the memory of the man and of his accomplishments, but it would be a terrible error to try to find the next Ronald Reagan. That person does not exist and shouldn't. Right. I think the word maybe I'm looking for, Peter, is evolution in this regard. Ronald Reagan serves two terms. Very popular president leaves office. George H.W. Bush serves one term and then is defeated seeking a second term. He strays away from the Reagan agenda in many ways. His son comes along in 2000, Peter, and he runs on a variation of Ronald Reagan, but he calls it compassionate conservatism, trying to take the rough edges off. Compassionate conservatism, Peter, is a casualty of 9-11, Bush becomes a wartime president. He then serves two terms. Mitt Romney and and John McCain and Mitt Romney come along. They're placeholder candidates. They're not philosophical Republicans in any way. Um, They are variations of Bob Dole saying, I'll be Ronald Reagan if you want me to be. Then along comes Donald J. Trump. Donald J. Trump is a one-term act as well. So I think if you look at 2024, Peter, this is a question I'm fascinated by. Will a Republican come forward who is in many regards, if not not Ronald Reagan, but an evolution of Ronald Reagan? In other words, another step forward. I see now the kind of question you're asking. Right. And here's what- Take take much of what worked for Ronald Reagan, sorry to interrupt, take much of what worked for Reagan, but also adapt it to 2024 America in terms of issues. The answer is, I hope so. And to fill out that answer a little bit, here's what the Constitution of the United States says you need to do if you want to affect real lasting changes in this country. You need to win the House of Representatives and hold that majority at least a few times. You need to win the Senate and keep the Senate 
again for a decade, longer if you can. Right. And you need to win the presidency and you need to win at the level of the state houses and state legislatures. And Republicans now have a majority of state legislatures. They have a majority of governorships. We are within 10 months of seeing Republicans recapture both the House and the Senate. And if current polls are any indication, they could recapture the House by historic proportions. 70 seats, not out of the question at all. So what I'm hoping for is another Ronald Reagan in this sense, a man or a woman who is, of course, entirely himself or herself. This is, Reagan felt so entirely comfortable in his own skin. I'd like that. I'd like another Ronald Reagan in this sense, someone who is capable of presiding over a great national movement, a great national achievement, a feeling that the nation has finally made some basic decisions about the direction in which it wants to go and who's able, able to preside over the beginnings of fundamental policy, economic policy, and also foreign policy that remain in place for a quarter of a century. I, I would like another Ronald Reagan in the sense that I am hoping that we can find someone who, 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 be, who becomes or is capable of becoming another epochal figure. That was a good answer, Peter, and that's a good place to stop this podcast. I enjoyed the conversation, and I suspect we'll be having more like this uh, as we lead up to 2024. Peter, thanks for your time. Bill, the only thing that could have made this better is if we'd each been in one place and having cigars. Yes, I agree with that. That's a Republican comment on which to end. <laughs> Very much so. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And if you would mind, spread the word. Tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover, I-N-S-T, at Hoover Inst. Peter Robinson is on Twitter, brave, foolish man that he is. His Twitter handle is at P underscore M underscore Robinson. Did I get that right, Peter? You did. Okay. And the Ricochet podcast. You can find that at ricochet.com. I highly recommend it because Ricochet is all about podcasts. And most importantly, it's about something we've been discussing on this podcast podcast civility in politics so check it out ricochet.com the ricochet podcast for the hoover institution this is bill whalen we'll be back soon with another installment of matters of policy and politics we'll be talking about california with my colleague leo hanian until then take care thanks for listening this podcast is a production of the hoover institution where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition for more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos please visit hoover.org.